Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where no one wants to sleep with any of our criminals because they're usually accountants instead of serial killers. That's right. Oddly enough, lots of people are hot and bothered for Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez, but nobody's hot for Bernie Madoff or Arthur Anderson. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. And this is part two of a two-part episode about how my hero, ethics researcher Dan Ariely, got caught cheating on his ethics research, which broke my heart and also broke my brain. And assuming that some of our listeners are too stubborn to go back and listen to part one, here's a quick summary. Previously on Oh My Fraud. Dan Ariely was famous for his quirky experiments that explored ethical behavior. He published a very well-received book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty in the Popular Press. He and his colleagues published an academic paper in 2012 with the super sexy title, Signing at the Beginning Makes Ethics Salient and Decreases Dishonest Self-Reports in Comparison to Signing at the End. The paper was very well received and extensively cited. In 2020, Ariely and his cohorts published a follow-up paper titled Signing at the End versus Signing at the Beginning Does Not Decrease Dishonesty, admitting that they could not replicate the findings in their 2012 paper. Along with the 2020 paper, they published the raw data from the 2012 report. And then a gaggle of data nerds called Data Collada dug into that raw data and unequivocally concluded that the data used by Ariely in the 2012 paper was faked. And with that, I think we're ready to jump back into our discussion in Lying About Lying, the Unethical Ethicist. Part, Part two. two. These folks at Data Collada, they first noticed that the raw data from the 2012 report did not follow the bell-shaped curve that even like data dum-dums know about, right? That there right, were basically right. this. Every, everybody the same... knows about everybody knows about the bell-shaped curve. Right, right. So that there were basically the same number of people, five to six hundred, who reported that they drove between zero and two thousand miles, as there were people who reported driving about twenty-five thousand miles, which was the median, as there were people who reported between forty-eight thousand and fifty fifty thousand miles driven. And what's even kind of more interesting is that the raw data showed that no one in this data set reported driving over 50,000 miles. And 50,000 miles is a lot, but there's certainly yeah. people who drive that much in a year. I know there's people who drive over 100,000 miles a year, and that's usually your, your people who, you know, it's like your, 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 your road warrior guy, kind of your salesman who's got to go, you know, see a client here, see a client there, see a client over there. And so they're driving, you know, it's not just a commute from home to work. It's they're right. driving out to, to take, you know, for the client relationship kind of thing. Those, those folks can get up into the, you know, six figures mileage uh, every year and not just barely into it, but significantly into it. Yeah. So yeah, there's people so who did do that, that. So did that make sense? Like the, the, the data he, did not, it did not have yeah. a bell shaped curve. Yeah. Right? Because, because usually like I on mean, the tails, on the tails, there would be a smaller amount and the majority yeah. of, of it would be in the middle. Right. Right. And the median, right. and, and the median was 25,000 and there was as many people, for example, on the low end as there were around the median. That doesn't make right. any sense. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's kind of, yeah. And like you said, it's like, it's not a bell shaped curve. It's more of a rectangle shaped <laughs> right. curve is what you, which isn't a curve. That's a rectangle. Yeah. It's and not so, a curve at all. Right. And <laughs> it's so that's, 
Exactly, and where and and again, they did show some variation because I looked at the I looked at the data, and yep. they did show some variation from the different the different thing you know the different levels of mileage, but it wasn't what you would expect because you would expect that there's gonna be I used listen I used to sell cars for a living for six months it was the worst job I've had in my entire <laughs> life, and Fantastic. and there would be the occasional you know the occasional car that was seven years old that had three thousand miles on it right and you'd go right. okay that's that's weird and we can charge more for that and it was you know it was the it was a little old lady's car and all she did was drive to the pet store to buy cat food every week you know that yeah <laughs> that, right. that kind of thing um so but but then you know and then you also had the the other end of the spectrum where you had these cars that were seven years old that had 300,000 miles on right. it. you go how, yeah, how the right. hell did that happen right. um but it it did but but yeah what you but but even if you think about that like most cars they have they have like a like their um the warranty on the car it's like it's like three years thirty thousand mile warranty mm-hmm. because they're expecting well and actually you know the 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 average or the median amount of miles driven is not ten thousand per year but they're assuming most people are probably going to be over that significantly so that they can cut down on their three years but. You're, you know, they, again, they're using the uh, actuaries to kind of figure out where's the sweet spot for cutting off our warranty because there's going to be, there's sort of a normal amount of miles that people put on there where the vast majority of people are going to be lumped in there, just like how bell-shaped curves work. Right. So based on that, the Data Colada gang, they concluded, and this is a quote from their blog post, I believe. We can't think of a plausible benign explanation for it. <laughs> right. Which is, so that, I think that's nerd. I think that's nerd speak for something, something fucked up is going on. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly. That's so it ex- gets, you, but it also you know, gets, you speak nerd. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. So it gets, <laughs> we both it gets, do. It, yeah, it gets a little weirder, right? They also, mm-hmm. there's this problem with rounding, Right. When people self-report large numbers, they often round the number, okay? This can be seen in the baseline data, which was carried over from the prior year, like you mentioned. About 25% of the baseline data ended in a zero, but only 10% of the updated data ended in zero. So that's a significant difference, right? So if you're saying, so if from the original data, if one in four of the reported mileage ended in a zero. Okay. Right. Baseline data. But then the updated data, only one in 10 ended in a zero. That is suspicious, right? Like people, because I think about it. I think if you even think about it when, when I've done it in the past, I'm like, nobody, nobody memorizes their odometer every time, every time they get out of their car, they have it. They, they look at the first two numbers and they're like, Oh Yeah. Uh, 49,000. That's what it is. And then like, when you think right. about your insurance, you're like, yeah, it's around 40, 49,000, but it's not like 48,767. Like nobody, nobody reports their mileage like that. Right. 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 And, and well, and the funny thing about that also is when you think about it, 10% of the data ending in a zero, there's only 10 digits that can be in the that ones column of your so 10% that's only 10% of numbers in the universe end in zero so that's a reflection of reality right. so that's why you can you can definitely conclude no one rounded in the right. se- in the second one whereas people did in the first one and i think that's what they were the data a lot of people were getting at is that there it sounds like there's been other studies where they do say, yeah, people are likely to round when they're self-reporting large numbers, and that yep. just didn't happen with the with the right like data your income, like your already income, was for fishy. Example. Like if you were if you were yeah. asked to report your income, you're not going to report right like down to the nickel. You report like right. your round figure, like of your gross income, right. Yeah. Unless you're a nerd and you pick out your tax return from the prior year and you go, well, are you talking about gross income or adjusted gross <laughs> adjusted income? Adjusted gross and income? And even then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then so. people want to punch you. 
Right. Okay. But, but also we're talking to a lot of accountants who listen to this podcast and are going, yeah, if somebody asked me what my income was, I'd ask them gross income or adjusted gross income. And then I'd go look at my tax return. And I'd tell them down to the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Okay. One more I weird know. thing. This is fun. Yeah. This, this next thing is fun. They also noticed that exactly half of the data was reported in the Calibri font. Am I saying that right? Calibri? I think so. That's how I say okay. it. Okay. Calibri font. While the other half was reported in the Cambria font. Uh-huh. So this is what it's come to. Following that a little right. bit deeper, they were able to then identify the, the Calibri Cambria driving twins. Okay. Drivers whose mileage mirrored one another off by less than a thousand miles, even across multiple cars. Right. Which that is okay. Incredibly, first off, that is incredibly suspicious, right? It's incredibly suspicious. And it's totally fucking weird that these people be like, wait a second. I think the font is, di-. and I even looked at the different differences yep. in the font. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have picked up on that. If I was just glancing at this data, I like not, not, but if you're looking at it in a spreadsheet, but if you're looking at it in a spreadsheet, the spreadsheet will tell you what the, what the typeface is. Oh, right, right. Well, and I think even, yeah, you can, you can find that information and obviously they did, but like I said, just from glancing at it, I don't think I'd see it. And I don't think I'd bother looking up to see that the, the font type was changing as I scrolled down from cell to cell. That's why Mm -hmm. you're not a data detective. That's exactly like these, why I'm not like the, nor- the data colada. These these people are like they're like data sleuths, right? Do you know that? Do you remember the song? Uh, do you like data colada? No, I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how Dan Ariely probably sings it, though. Right? He so. does. <laughs> Def- he he still likes getting caught in the rain, but he does not like data colada. Um, but yeah, so, so I, so even with that, I looked at a few of these and it was crazy because they, the way that they found these, I mean, my understanding of the way that they found the driving twins, like I said, they had, there, there was people who reported one, two, three, and four cars. And obviously it was a very small group of the people that had four cars that were under the same policy. And so they, so they looked at just the, I think there was less than 20 respondents that had four cars and they started looking at the Calibri versus the Cambria. And they were like, wait a second, these two drivers and, and you tracked them year to year and they like their mileage that they drove each year for all four cars, like tracked each other. And you go, that's not, that yeah. doesn't make sense. If, if you have no. four cars, like, like, again, I've got three cars and one of them, one of them is my 1973 a Ford Bronco, and there yeah, are. What do you years, put like fifty miles on that every year? It, what? No. Well, here's the 500? thing: the years, the years that I'm like worried that it's because there's years where I'm more confident in it, years that I'm less confident in it, <laughs> right. and the years that I'm more confident, I drive it as much as I possibly can. Okay. But in the years where I go, it's driving a little weird. It spends a lot of time it in the garage, parked. and that's yeah. one of my three cars. <laughs> The other cars maybe get similar, my, but then you're not just talking about that. You're saying, okay, me take me and some other person that also has three cars. Are we driving our cars the same? The three cars, like the same. Each car has about the same number of miles, even though those miles are different car to car. You can go, okay, car one for both of us got 17,000 to 18,000 miles. Car two got 11,000 to 12,000 miles. Car three, and you go, got, got you know, six to 7,000 miles, and car four got six to 7,000 miles. And you go, that's really weird. And they found, I believe what I was reading was they found, they were able to find twins for basically all of the cars in the data set where they were like that. And that's, and, and yeah, that seems fishy to me as well. So the data nerds, they found all these inconsistencies or all these all these things that were like suspicious about the data. And like like you said, Caleb, they even were like this. They said in nerd ease, this data is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. and, but 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 they were also at the same time, they were very level headed about what 
the bullshit data actually means or what it actually demonstrates. Right. And, and this is a quote, this is another quote from their blog post. And it says, it's impossible to tell because, because again, they were like, this data has been fabricated, but then they say it's impossible to tell from the data who fabricated it. There are three logical possibilities. Ariely himself, someone in Ariely's lab, or someone at the insurance company. So just the fact that the data was fabricated didn't necessarily mean, hey, Ariely, you're full of shit and you talk about being honest and you are being dishonest because this data is clearly bullshit. So I think that's, again, that's what you would expect from someone who's a super data sleuth. Um, is that they would also realize the the exact limitations of what their findings show. Right. And then the nerds also <laughs> stated, uh, and this and and this was this kind of bummed me out because they said we have worked on enough fraud cases in the last decade to know that scientific fraud is more common than it is convenient to believe. And that it does not happen only on the periphery of science. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Trimerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mill pops up offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. We've all seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I even personally know a guy here in Utah who's been charged with fraud for false ERC claims totaling $11 million. These questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be reaching out to them soon too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing TriMerit. TriMerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and the work opportunity credit. And working with them is as easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure that your clients meet all requirements. And three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. To learn more about adding TriMerit to your team, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash TriMerit. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. What does that, wait, what does that last part mean? Yeah, I, well, <laughs> I mean, the way I'm interpreting it is they're saying that there's some like, core scientific well and again i mean we're talking this stuff is published not in some you know janky journal of weirdness that's you know that right <laughs> you know it, it's not it's like in a super well respected journal yep in science and and that they're seeing fraud and i guess that's what these guys that must be their mission statement is to weed out fraud in science and they see that it happened, you know, and I think that's the same case with financial fraud is that we, we hope that it's only the occasional Enron and Bernie Madoff that does it. But in reality, it happens a lot more than it's convenient to believe. So what does Dan Ariely have to say about all this? He maintains his innocence and he, he kind of Blaze, he puts he puts the onus or the blame or the responsibility on the insurance company. And so okay. we kind of break down some of the stuff that we found in terms of like what kind of where, where yeah, he's right. Or it's some, you know, there's other stuff that kind of points to something else. So one point in, in his favor is that he and his research partners published a blog post and that that new peer reviewed paper admitting that they couldn't 
replicate the results of the 2012 paper. And those were both published prior to the data collada blog about the falsified data, right? So, okay. so yeah. they continued the research. They're, they had contradictory findings and they, and they published the paper and they said, hey, guess what? Contradictory findings. So right there, it, it kind of suggests that they're acting in good faith. Right, right. You're you're not going to narc yourself out if you have nefarious uh, motives. Probably not. I mean, right. Probably be, not. I mean, I suppose you could kind of contrive a reason why, but it would be it would be very kind of like unbelievable. Right. Well, they right. would. You know, this is why to throw us off the right. scent or something. You know, right. And it, get, like, it gets kind of conspiracy theory Super. If you, if you it goes. It goes straight but, but to it, QAnon quick. Like it, it just right. wouldn't make any <laughs> right. sense. Right. But like you said, it's it's like a point in their favor, but it's not like a slam dunk. Okay. Well, then for sure they didn't fake the data. Right. It's just more like this might be an indication that they didn't fake. Yeah. The it's data. It, like it suggests that they acted in good faith. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So then. Uh, Ariely is quoted by BuzzFeed. There's a there's a BuzzFeed article in uh, the show notes uh, that a, a very kind of comprehensive article about not only the findings of the study, but they talked to Ariely. They got him on the record for a lot of this stuff. And in that article, he's quoted, I can see why it is tempting to think that I had something to do with creating the data in a fraudulent way. I can see why it would be tempting to jump to that conclusion, but I didn't. It's not really much, much of a jump, right? Um, when they say of, that, when he says don't jump to that conclusion, it's like it's not. We just kind of land. We we like fell. We didn't jump to that conclusion. We just right that conclusion fell in our lap, right? And it's interesting because all five of the original authors, including Ariely, have stated that they agree with the data collada bloggers' conclusion that the data were faked and. All of their responses, when the, when the, so the data collada folks, they reached out to the authors. All the authors responded, and they and they published their responses in kind of the footnotes of that blog post. And you can read them at the blog post. And yeah, I think we get to Ariely's response. But in any case, like again, it seems like everybody here is acting in good faith. And so, right, that right. kind of well, would lead you to suggest that that kind of suggests that Ariely. It, he wouldn't be he probably wouldn't be behaving this way if he were the one who falsified the data okay gotcha right and, and i do i mean and again if we're like, if this is like a if this is like a murder mystery a who done it one of the things everyone is a, in agreement that the data the data was no, there's nobody saying no that's the real data that's really how people drive their cars nobody's right. doing that so it's not right. so much a is the data faked? It's who faked the data, right. which I think is fascinating. That really narrows down the focus of the yep. of of the mystery. Yep. So here here's one piece of the story that counts against Ariely. At one point in the story, it's recounted by one of his co-authors, Nina Mazar, who saw quote what looked like a major error. Bottom signers seemed more likely to be honest. The opposite of the hypothesis. When Mazar pointed this out to Ariely, he told her that when preparing the data set for her, he had accidentally switched the labels of the top signers and the bottom signers. Mazar swapped them upon his request. Now that looks real bad. That's that's so shitty. That's like, oh, this thing we're trying to prove, we see the opposite. So, oh, you know what? I just, oh, I'm such a dumb dumb. It's just like I, on Big. Just remember in Big where he's applying for the job and the guy's like, oh, there's a couple of numbers off missing off your social security number. And he's like, uh, 17. <laughs> like he just puts it on. <laughs> I don't remember that, but that oh, is awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where you, you, we, we just went through the stuff. We just went through the points where we said, ah, it looks like Ariely's acted in good faith. But then his own co-author tells this story about right. he's just like, uh, yeah, I just mislabeled him. Just switch him and it's fine. Right. Like right. that is, I mean, like people make honest mistakes like that, right? Completely plausible. Mm-hmm. Right. But also, right. but also, 
<laughs> you could the other the other conclusion is just as likely. I mean, maybe not just as likely, but it's not unlikely, right? Right. Like if he if he decided if he was the one. Let's just for the sake of argument, if he was the one to falsify the data, this is how he covers his tracks, right? Whereas he just like, oh, I made a mistake. You just got to swap them, and, and that that was my bad. And so she did it, and it and and it the, then the data supports her hypothesis, right. right? And again, in I mean, in in Dan Ariely's defense, like you said, that is something. I mean, we've all, we've worked with spreadsheets enough to know that you fuck them up from oh, time yes. to time. Oh my god, yeah, but course but but also i go okay if you you're much more likely to make a mistake like that if you've gone through the whole spreadsheet and manipulated the data in the entire spreadsheet right because then that's when you go oh shit i <laughs> ah i did i did it backwards i meant oh fuck okay and that, oh imagine hey. imagine the biological reaction that you would have when that happens like that like we've been in those situations where you oh. do something oh yeah right where you're just like like the, yeah. the pit in your the pit in your stomach that you opens get, like there's you mean nothing where you else get like busted it for, yeah like there's nothing you get else like for it lying. yeah yeah no, yeah no. there's nothing else like it there's nothing else that feels like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it is. It's the worst. And then you go, and then you say something stupid like, oh, I think when I made the spreadsheet, I just switched those around. And then as soon as you hang up, you go, holy shit, what the <laughs> fuck did I just say? There's no way this is getting through. <laughs> I'm and so then, busted. And then she just goes, then 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 Nina Mazar just goes, oh, I guess she, he switched them up. Cool. I'll switch them back for him. He goes, phew. Dodged a bullet. There can't be a group called Data Colada out there that's going to double check my work. <laughs> so, finally, there's one more point that might be in Ariely's favor. And it's, it's from a quote from when he spoke to the Times of Israel. And he said, quote, I think my academic reputation will take a hit, but I have patience and I believe my studies speak for themselves. Five years from now, more good studies we do will come out and people will scrutinize the details and see they're fine and we'll continue moving forward. So he seems like he's pretty, <laughs> he's got a lot of confidence, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Con man is short for confidence, man. And <laughs> true. The best frauds as we have well documented through many episodes here on Oh My Fraud is that these perpetrators have a ton of confidence. So right. I don't and, mean and to I suggest I don't mean to suggest that he's like being untruthful here that that he's that he is like being like that he's lying. He's uh -huh. expressing he's expressing his opinion, right? Right. And so you can't say that he's right or wrong. He's like I'm doing work that's going to prove it out. So just watch. Like right. I don't know if I was in his shoes, I would probably feel the same way. Right. And and it's it's one of those and I can, and again I could see this going either way. Where on the one hand he just goes, yeah, listen, it it was an honest mistake. Right. I got bad data from the insurance company. I should have looked at it closer. I should have found all these problems, but I didn't. And I just believed what was given to me. And we were and that was folded into this study. So going forward, you'll see that my that my research is solid because from now on you're not going to find any problems in my research. Right. The other side could be, oh shit, I got busted for lying on this research. So there's no way in hell that I'm going to lie on any of my research for at least right. the next five years. Then no. the lies are back on. Oh, and that's you would do that would be your response either way, whether you got caught or you didn't. You you'd want to have good, clean research going forward. That's right. I mean, after this, after this, like, his, like it will, there will be so many people paying even closer <laughs> right. attention to the stuff that he publishes because of this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so like he, in, in, like you say, on the one hand, he's confident in his abilities and he's confident in the overall thesis, but also he's confident. It's like, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to try to do this again. Right. right. Why would I do that? Exactly. So anyway, 
Well, here's what I think, Caleb. I think that what needs to happen is that Dan Ariely and his team of researchers, they need to sign a statement of honest intent before they do every study that they conduct in the future because that's going to help them be more honest with it. As a matter of fact, I say before every they they not only need to sign a statement of honest intent, they also need to brainstorm the Ten Commandments and swear on the Bible before every single one of their future experiments, and then and then that'll help me be more confident in their in the truthfulness of their their studies. I love this idea. Take your own medicine, swallow your own pill. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Patriot. Patriot software creates accounting and payroll software that radically simplifies the day-to-day complexities that American businesses and their accountants face. Patriot is seamlessly integrated under one login, easy to use and affordable. And they rank number one for ease of use, customer support, features, and value for the money by users. Patriot's accounting software is a cloud-based, full-featured accounting general ledger that gives your clients the simplicity they need, but the power you require. Patriot has patented dual-ledger accounting, so you can quickly switch between cash basis, modified cash basis, or accrual accounting, and a chart of accounts that can have unlimited sub-accounts and nest up to eight accounts deep. Patriot's payroll software lets you run payroll in three easy steps, offers free two-day direct deposit, and their full-service payroll offers a tax filing guarantee. Accounting professionals can partner with Patriot and receive discounted pricing that increases as you add more clients. Support located in the USA, free co-branding, and free accounting and payroll for your firm. Join thousands of accounting professionals who trust Patriot with their clients' accounting and payroll and get a 30-day free trial. Head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash patriot. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash p-a-t-r-i-o-t. So, Caleb, I want to talk about whether or not uh, you and I, or even more specifically, I need to stop using Dan Ariely's research. And, okay. I mean, Greg, what, what do you think? Greg. Do you think? Greg. Yes. Yes. Do you need to stop using Dan Ariely's book as a basis for ethics webinars? I say no. I say Whoa. I do not need to retract all the webinars that we've done in the there, past. There, There's your surprise twist, uh, podcast listeners. It, Tell me well, more, Greg. Okay, so here, here's the big thing. So, yeah. Um, ref, so one of the big things that he talks about, one of the one of the findings that he has that I rely upon a lot is the whole mm-hmm. thing we've talked about: a reflection on a moral code. That if you have yeah. some sort of like honest uh, reflection on whether or not you are an ethical person, that that changes your moral behavior. And I believe that a that's obvious. Um, B I feel like I have, like I've experienced that myself. So, and, and specifically when I, when I was a, uh, when I was in my MBA program, we had, it it was this, it was a, uh, what they call it? It was an executive MBA program. Not that I was an executive, but what that meant was the, you did, you only took one class at a time. So you're, so, and every class was exactly five weeks long and you did four hours of class on Friday night and four hours of class on Saturday mornings for five weeks. And that was your course. And we took an ethics class as part of our MBA curriculum. And so for five weeks, I was doing nothing but reading HBR ethics uh, articles. And in that five weeks, I started making restitution like I was an alcoholic on step nine. I mean, it had this major impact on me because all I was doing for five weeks was reflecting on, am I a good person or am I a piece of shit? And what have I done that hasn't been morally perfect? And I was so lucky. like con- convicted. You're lucky you made it out alive, man. You, you, you're it, lucky you made it out of that alive, man. It, it, well, and all I'm saying is I go, I have personal, albeit anecdotal evidence that reflection on a moral code is incredibly powerful 
on the human psyche. So yep. I don't feel, I, I feel like I can, I can still lean on, I, I still believe that the, even if the findings of this study are wrong or inconclusive, I do, I, it, it seems like overall, overarching principle, it's true and it can have an effect. Even if, even if we're not going to say, it's not going to have a negative impact on moral behavior. And I've seen okay. it myself that it has a positive impact on moral behavior. All right. Cool. I also uh, want to say that signing a statement of honest intent, obviously it's not a silver bullet, but again, at worst, if you have someone sign a statement of honest intent and then they lie, you at least have a lot of rope to hang that person with kind of, <laughs> kind of like, yeah. um, what, what was it after Enron? They had the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And yes. the Sarbanes-Oxley Act required executives to certify the financial statements, to sign yep. saying these financial statements are accurate. And, yes. and the funny thing is, according to the research that was debunked, they signed that after the fact, that, not before the fact. Correct. So, yes. but, but regardless, they signed it saying that it was accurate. So if it turns out to be not accurate then everybody can go back and say, hey, look, you said that this was accurate. It's not. So here's your here's your go to jail. Can I quibble with you on that? Please. The only thing that is slightly different about that particular, the, the certification of the financial statements is that everyone knew it was in the legislation when it passed and became law. So to implement it, every CEO and C every CFO knew prior to the audit completion of the audit and the certification of the financial statements, they knew that they would have to do that at the end, but they knew it was in the legislation. They okay. knew they were going to be required to do it. So even if it was already done and they signed it after the fact, they had knowledge that they would have to do it after the fact before it was, before it occurred. So it feels like they're not front running. I don't want to use that word because that means something else entirely, but it feels like because of that knowledge, it still mm -hmm. feels like they they're attesting in a way they're attesting beforehand. Right. Uh, Do you, and you follow. I a hundred percent follow. And more where I'm going is whether or not that increases ethical behavior or it has no impact on ethical behavior. I don't think anybody could say that that's going to make people less ethical by having to sign that. And regardless oh, of all yeah. the Im ethical implication, you've got somebody who signed a thing, said these are good. And so if they're not, you can go and use that against them in a court of law. Yeah. That's basically hey, you said where right I'm going here, with that. Here, here's your, this is your signature. I love it in court when they're like, excuse me, this signature, <laughs> is it yours? And people are like, yes, that's my signature. <laughs> right. And like, it's like, and the noose gets tight, you know, and it's just, you know. Right. Yeah, and the and the people in the in the uh, in the court, they all give a standing ovation to the Lord. I've seen the movies; I know how that goes. So it's pretty, Wait, which pretty, pretty dramatic. The, some of the some of the things too, though. I do think this case is interesting because it puts some limits on some of Dan Ariely's own research. Like, for instance, kind of like we were saying with all the rationalization stuff. If a reflection on a moral code, if that makes you less likely to be unethical, if it makes you more likely to be ethical, then there are few people who reflect on moral codes more often than Dan Ariely. And clearly, sure. it if, if you think that he's the one who faked this data, it didn't work for him. So, and also, and even thinking about that, we did an episode about fraud in religious organizations and religions obviously... People who are very religious, they reflect on moral codes all the time, but all there's still the plenty of fraud and plenty of fraud and theft in religious organizations. So there is a limit on how how much reflection on a moral code is going to affect your behavior ethically speaking. As a as a Catholic adjacent person, yes. I can attest that early on in the mass, and again, the Catholics listening will 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 crucify me for uh getting this wrong but early on in the mass there there is where you 
you're, you absolve yourself before God to prepare yourself for the mass. And I don't know the, the I don't oh. know the exact language, but there is a moment in the mass where that is the express thing that you're doing is preparing yourself before God by asking for forgiveness for your sins. And so right then and there, it's like you're in this holy place. So get ready. Right. Because you're going to you're going to atone, bitches. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but but I got to think that a lot of that becomes just sort of rote and and. Oh, for sure. Th- thoughtless if it's happened all the all uh, again and again. And it's funny because I absolutely can see that within myself because I teach on ethics regularly. And yeah. there's been there's been plenty of times in it's been almost a decade. The first time I taught I did ethics training was in I think it was in 2013 and there's been plenty of times where I where I'll go t- I'll I'll be presented with an ethically ambiguous situation, and I will choose the most conservative route because I have to go, I teach this stuff. There's no way I can be unethical myself. But that said, after doing it for 10 years, I also know that that happens less now than it did at the beginning. So again, there's sort of this familiarity with the uh, with with ethics that almost makes you immune to the to the efficacy of a reflection on a moral code. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. So, Greg, have we learned anything? <laughs> I, I yes, we've, er- we've oh, learned. Oh, good. We've learned so many things and a lot of it we've already uh, enumerated, but a couple of things that haven't, we haven't really hit on that, that stick out to me. First of all, Caleb, never trust anyone ever, especially people that you admire and respect. I don't care if they have peer-reviewed papers that are published in scientific journals. Ariely's books were all lies. COVID was a hoax, and the media is all fake. Basically, I have to say this story turned me into uh, QAnon. I am QAnon now. Oh, hello, Q. Hey, how's it going? No, uh, totally Joe. Actually, the funny thing was that is, I mean, even though that's kind of a knee-jerk response to a lot of what we talked about when i think longer about what happened in this story if anything it actually reinforces my belief and my trust in science because because as we see in here scientists they call bullshit on themselves case in point ariely at all publishing a paper that contradicts their their prior findings so yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty cool that not only and, and not only do scientists call BS on themselves, but there's also people like Data Collada who love to call bullshit on other scientists. So scientists call bullshit on themselves and they call bullshit on each other. I, it's interesting. I don't know if they love. I, it'd be I, it would be. Oh, we should talk to these people. They love because it'd it. Be my, yeah, they, they, uh, maybe they maybe they love it, but they certainly feel duty bound to okay. call fucking bullshit on people. Yeah, you know but, what I mean. But there's also you got to think that they got to get some kind of some kind of you know goose of of uh, of dopamine for for going. I got him. That you know, there's a there's a lot of sense of satisfaction of being the being the cop who solved the solved the crime. Yeah. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? 
Uh, they bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. All right. The, the other thing, the other thing that we didn't talk about so far in this podcast is that everything we talked about very, and, and even some stuff we didn't actually get to reinforces to me, the effectiveness of transparency in the mm. realm of ethics, uh, because one of the suggestions that the ta- data colada people had, the, a suggestion they had to increase scientific integrity is they, they said, hey, maybe what we should do in the scientific world is require people who publish papers to also publish their raw data at the same time. Because in this case, there was a 2012 paper that was incredibly influential. The data was not published until the follow-up paper eight years later. And that was the data that the data Colada people used to then yes. de- to, to, to show that the data that was being used was fake. So if the data was published at the same time, then all of the... Uh, all of the data buzzards would descend on it and pick it apart and go, oh, this is wrong before it had a chance to really disseminate throughout the scientific community. I right. 100% believe in that. And I've, and I've said this so many times in webinars and in live presentations that transparency is, in my mind, is the silver bullet for unethical behavior. Um, for instance, one of the things I talk about a lot is if even in little tiny things, like if you go, oh shoot, I, my, my cat is missing. I need to print flyers to post around my neighborhood to see if I can get my cat back. I don't have a printer at home. I need to print these at work and I don't know if that's okay. There's two, one thing you could do is just do it anyways and uh, and and you don't know if you're being unethical because and you're probably su- suspecting that you are. Um, another thing is to not do it and be frustrated that you're missing cats out there still being missing or the silver bullet. Go and ask somebody in charge saying, hey, can I print missing cat flyers on this? And then if they say yes, you're totally in the clear. And if they say no, you know that you couldn't handle it that way. It's a it's a total silver bullet when you're in an ethical dilemma. Ask somebody in charge and they will tell you what to do. It's, I mean, it can be hard and a lot of people overlook that, but it's kind of obvious and it's right there. And then on top yeah. of that, whatever you can do just to make what you do more public, more transparent, that's going to, that's going to force your transparency. For instance, and Caleb, I don't, I don't know. Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but if all public, cause, cause the data, a lot of people are saying, Hey, you have to publish. We should require that raw data is published when the paper is published. In the financial world, if all public companies were forced to publish their QuickBooks file, I know I know public companies probably don't ever use QuickBooks, but whatever their <laughs> their accounting software file is, if they have to publish a complete set of books that shows all their transactions for the entire year when they publish their financial statement, then Fraud's probably going to be, if it's not reduced, uh, if, I mean, if it's not eliminated, it would at least be reduced dramatically. Do you, do you agree with that? What do you think? Uh, I mean, it would, it would certainly have an impact because you got to think that a lot of fraud, as we've talked about in the past is like, it gets covered up by, you know, accrual accounting hijinks, right? Like, yeah vague, vague accounts and like in, in weird entries and, 
And like, if you, you know, if you, if, if that data were made available, let's just say to everyone, your accounting equivalent of data colada, accounting colada would come around and, and <laughs> if, if, if they had, you know, let's say you, you read, you, you, you read the financial statements and you, and you saw something fishy, you did some finance, you did some, you did some analysis and you, you saw something that didn't look quite, quite right. And then it's like, Hmm, I'd like to look into this further and you can pull up and yeah. you can just pull up all the data, all, all the, the entries, data. right? They'll find it. Yeah. Right. It'll, it'll be there somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so it would, at the, it would, it would get rooted out it, it, in the short term. It would get rooted out and over the long term, it would probably reduce the instance of fraud. Yeah. Yeah. But again, the funny thing is you go, okay, so that might work for public companies, but for private companies and for smaller businesses and mom and oh. pops who are still at, well, arguably who are more susceptible to fraud than the big public yeah. companies. N- yeah. There's not enough, there's not enough data geeks and uh, accounting colada potentials out there to possibly root out all the fraud that's existing in all the companies. So right. it would I mean, so much of it, even, even, even if you think about public companies, there's a reason like, so, you know, short sellers, for example, like you talk to short sellers or you, or you, or you read their reports or you hear what they say about on TV and stuff. And it's like so much of what they're talking about is, is fraud just hiding in plain sight. Right. Cause they're reading, they're reading the SEC filings. Yeah. They're using the same financial statements that are made available to everybody else. Right. But they're the ones going to look for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to take it just kind of that step further to say, yeah, not only are the financial statements available, but we're going to require like these massive up- uploads of data mm-hmm. that are going to be made publicly available. Like, Oh man, like, who knows? Like, right. And then you know, all and the then, bodies, all the bodies are buried in those numbers somewhere. Right. And likely somebody could, somebody's going to create a program and a bot to, to comb through all that stuff too. So oh, I yeah. think that could be good, but, but you know, it's never going to happen because companies are going to be, that's, that's proprietary information. If it's proprietary information, every yeah. transaction, then that's my employees right. are going to revolt because they'll know what everybody else makes. And that's going to be, you know, yep. chaos and, and yeah. bedlam. So don't, we can't do that. So it seems, it seems unlikely, if not impossible, that that would ever, ever, ever become the, the common practice. Given, given the state of things today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not, not, not in our lifetime. But that's what, that's what I learned. What, what about yeah. you, Caleb? Anything stick out for you of, no, of lessons I, learned? I like, I like both of those things that you mentioned. I really like the point you made about science working because uh, I think you're exactly right in this, in this instance, the scientific process, uh, is to call bullshit on your peers. And, um, (laughs) yeah. And I guess for me, what it kind of brought up is, you know, where there, and we were just talking about it, but it's like, you know, where we could use some more accountability in the business world. Right. And yeah. like if, and, and so, it, or it just even in the accounting world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the closest thing we have, and again, we kind of touched on this a bit, but the closest thing we've had is something that we brought, that was brought up in our conversation with uh, Professor Dan Taylor, which is the so-called kind of pr- this idea of private enforcement. Right. Right. Of, of fraud. And that includes journalists, uh, lawyers, short sellers, those kinds of people who are, are on the lookout for nefarious activity and report on it one way or another, you know, either through uh, journalism or litigation, or in the case of short sellers, you know, actively writing reports and 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 selling short stocks where they believe there's there's fraud uh, going on, and so conspicuously absent from those lists of private enforcement folks are business people. <laughs> Right. People that have the expertise (laughs) to understand like what is going on, like an insider's knowledge of how things get done. Right. right? And I mean, there's, there's, there's a few, like there's obviously forensic accountants out there and and things. There's people that do that kind of work. Right. And, but as a general rule. Yeah. yeah. And don't discount internal auditors. That's, that's no, you're right. There's no more private enforcement than an internal audit team inside a company. But I think those are kind of some of your unsung heroes and there's a lot of, yeah. They, and, and they, even an internal audit team is not, it isn't, doesn't exist in all businesses. So right. it, it, that right. doesn't, that doesn't, 
contradict your point, but but it does it, it does kind of broaden the number of of yeah of uh, heroes. I think the other interesting thing that I learned that's related to this is just how strong of feelings people seem to have about this particular uh, situation. The, specifically, re- the Ariely situation. The Ariely situation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I read one column that basically said that. Again, it kind of underscores the point that we made, which is this is proof that the scientific process works and oh. and is like and and rigorous and robust, and that we should we should celebrate it because yeah. it, it 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 does have this accountability mechanism kind of built into it, and at a time when so many people uh, seem to distrust science based on basically nothing. Science has just shown that it it it's extremely resilient um, yeah. in terms of like how how it's done, how it's practiced. So right. I think that's really interesting. But then there's other people out there, academics, frankly, that are convinced oh. that this is just you know that they they just see this as this is fraud in academia and like that the system is 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 irreparably broken and and especially like mm. there's a lot of a lot of scrutiny on behavioral economics specifically. There's countless articles oh, okay. out there. That BuzzFeed article, the original article that I found when I, I actually brought this story to your attention, Greg, the Dan area story. You were the one and that, you're the one that knocked him off my pedestal. Thanks. Yes, indeed. Anyway, uh, I, I went down kind of a rabbit hole on kind of the scrutiny around behavioral economics and it's, it's pretty widespread. Like there are people, there, there seems to be a, a contingent of, of, of skeptics around behavioral economics hmm. and um, they are, they are not shy about expressing their doubts about it. And the replication thing, the, the replication of the results yeah. is what is so difficult to prove. And so yeah. even somebody like who hasn't even come up in this conversation, but like Daniel Kahneman, who's like one of the, one of the founders essentially of this field, right? Kahneman he he has been criticized all over the place about some of the findings of his own studies. Really? And so like, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so he's he's, he's, he's the big dog. He's the, oh, no, he's kind of yeah. the godfather of behavioral economics. Yeah. Him and his, his research partner, uh, Amos, uh, uh, Tversky, uh-huh. they were the ones who basically created this, uh, this field hmm. and, and won a Nobel prize. And, and, uh, I mean, um, <clears throat> I don't think technically, I don't think Kahneman and Tversky, Kahneman won it in 2002. I don't remember if Tversky ever actually won a Nobel Prize. But in any case, loser. Well, I don't. I don't. I, somebody's going to have to keep me honest on that. I don't. I don't keep track of this. No, I wasn't calling but you a loser. Case. I wasn't calling you a loser. I was calling Tversky a loser. Oh, Not okay, winning well. a Nobel Prize like a little don't speak. punk. Don't. Greg, speaking ill of the dead. Anyway. Oh, is he? Oh. Yeah, he passed. He passed years away. Ago. Well, then. Long time well, ago. Well, here's the thing. Then that completely erases the ethics from it because he's not. He's not around to get his feelings hurt. Anyway, um, that was that was the other thing I th- had is like just how just how kind of I don't know if heated is the right word, but it is a, there is some spirited debate going on yeah. around this stuff. Well, and even that that last part you said about people just thinking that science at large is uh, is corrupted. It, the, the, the quote from the data Colada people about how widespread fraud in scientific research is, that was, that was definitely disheartening. And I, and, yeah. and I, it almost feels like they're on the, I don't, I mean, I think that they would, they would reluctantly assent to, like you said, the robustness and the fact that the science on the big, on the, big picture the you know you zoom out the scientific process works but i think it sounded a little like they were a little depressed and a little defeated on how, yeah. how often they're seeing this happen like this is we didn't need this exactly exactly All right, that's it for this episode of Oh My Fraud. Uh, Remember, when you are signing a statement of honest intent, always sign it using a fake name. And also remember, if you drive more than 50,000 miles in one year, you don't exist. You know, like Santa Claus. If you want to drop us a line, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, 
if people want to stalk and harass you, where can they find you out there on the internet? On Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, what about you? Where are you at? People can find me also on Twitter at Greg Kite, also on LinkedIn backslash Greg Kite. You can also, if you are in need of more ethics CPE, feel free to find my limited series podcast, Drunk Ethics, that's available as a premium podcast through the Earmark app as an in-app purchase. Oh My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Reviews help people find the podcast. So leave us a review. It's much appreciated. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen on the po- if you listen to the podcast on Earmark, you could earn free CPE. Nothing unethical about that. No, sir. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, "Oh, oh, my fraud, my fraud."